Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. I began singing to Autumn before she was born. While we were still pregnant, I'd put my head down near Molly's pregnant belly and sing the songs that my mom used to sing to me at night. I would sing Jesus Loves Me and Safe Am I and God is Watching Over You. Every night before tucking us in, those are the songs that mom would sing. And sometimes as we got older, mom would skip the songs. And I remember some teenagers would be embarrassed to admit this, but I remember as a teenager sometimes saying, Mom, you forgot to sing. The songs still mattered. They did something larger than I could say. The night that Autumn was born, things didn't go exactly as expected. The labor was complicated and difficult, and it turned out that Autumn had to be delivered by an emergency C-section. And so after Autumn was delivered, and they were finishing up with Molly, there was at least a half hour that it was just Autumn and me. And yeah, we had to go do some stuff. We had to weigh her and they wanted to put some goop in her eyes that she didn't like, some kind of medicine. And when we finally got back to the room and it was just the two of us, I sang to her. And I remember that Autumn calmed right down, almost like she knew that voice almost as if she knew these songs. Widely acclaimed photojournalist and author of the Living Lullabies Project, Hannah Reyes Morales, has documented the nighttime rituals of parents all around the globe, and especially of families facing critical issues, war refugees, displacement, poverty, immigration, homelessness, struggle, oppression. And she says that the lullabies we sing to our children reveal something about us. They're like a window into our hopes, our fears, and our dreams for the future. Lullabies are sung in our most intimate spaces as the day comes to a close. And yes, on the face they are songs that just serve a function, like putting children to sleep. But woven within, they can carry so much more. They carry echoes and traces of those who came before us. Often we don't just make up our lullabies, we inherit them. We adapt them, we might change them, but we also pass them on. They are songs of place, they are songs that often carry our greatest fears, but also our greatest assurances, our hopes, and our prayers. They carry our dreams for the future. 
Denny Palmer Wolf is a research consultant with the Lullaby Project, and she works with displaced families and refugees. And she notes how many parents talk about using lullabies as a way of establishing home. They're like a portable sanctuary. She says, like prayers or traditional stories, you can carry lullabies anywhere with you. They take no room in your backpack. You can always pack them in. It's a way of establishing continuity where there is almost none. As parents sing, lullabies are not only calming their own children's fear, they are also calming their own fear. There's a professor at the University of Toronto, Laura Sorelli, and she's found that when lullabies are sung, the cortisol levels, the stress levels in both babies and parents drop. So we are not only singing for our children, we are singing for ourselves. Lullabies stand as a reminder in the dark of night that we are not alone, that there's always hope, and there's always the promise of the light of the morning that's waiting for us. So, a discussion question that we chatted about on Sunday, if you are listening with someone else, maybe you'll chat with them, or maybe you'll just reflect on this. What lullabies or other songs were sung to you? Or did you sing to your children? Tell the story. What might these songs reveal about the singer's hopes, fears, or dreams for the future? So take a moment with that. Today we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke, and we're about to read a song that Mary composed. It's known as the Magnificat. It's a song by a voice from the bottom of society. It's a song of a brown teenage girl born into poverty, pregnant out of wedlock, soon to be known by her community as an adulteress, living under military occupation under a tyrant king who was known to massacre mercilessly, execute people routinely, and he was unhinged enough to assassinate his own family, his own wife and uncle, mother-in-law, three sons. This is the song of a girl from the margins, a girl from a nowhere town, a nobody, a forgettable, yet chosen and protected by God. And I want to suggest that this song that we're about to read is a song that Jesus likely fell asleep to over and over as a child. I want to suggest that Jesus probably heard Mary sing this song throughout the day. This song didn't take any room in Jesus' backpack as his parents fled as refugees to Egypt. 
It's a song that probably gave Mary and Jesus a feeling of home and place, a sanctuary. You say, why do you suggest all of that? It's just a song that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, and Mary sang it one time when she went to Elizabeth's house when she was 13 to 16 years old. Like, that's all the scripture says. Well, the question is, how many of us can remember a song that we made up and sang one time when we were a teenager or decades ago? Not me. I can't. The only songs I remember are the songs that I have kept alive in my memory by singing them over and over. Luke didn't interview Mary when she was 13 to 16 years old. He interviewed her decades later. Biblical scholars say that the Gospel of Luke was written either before 62 AD or between 70 AD and 85 AD, which means this was not a song that Mary sang one time. This was the song that Mary sang to Jesus over and over, down through the years. I want to suggest that the reason that Mary was able to sing it to Luke decades later was because she'd sung it a thousand times to Jesus and to herself. She knew this song. So here it is. With all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored, because the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone, from one generation to the next, who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. The Jesus who likely listened to this song as he fell asleep and as Mary went through her day is the same Jesus who said as an adult, The Spirit has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's the same Jesus who said, Blessed are you who are poor, but woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who hunger now, but woe to you who are well fed now. Blessed are you who weep now, but woe to you who laugh now. Can you hear Mary's song in the background? The songs that play in our heads at night and throughout the day don't have just one meaning. They have a hundred meanings because of what we're living through and experiencing. This song meant something different to Mary when she was a refugee in Egypt than when she was pregnant. 
it meant something different when Herod died and they were able to move back to Nazareth. It meant something different when Jesus grew up and Mary felt like Jesus was completely out of his mind. It meant something different when Jesus was on the cross praying, Father, forgive them. It meant something different when Jesus was her resurrected son and then even her ascended son. It meant something different when Mary was living in the middle of the new kingdom of God community, this community that held all things in common. We all come to this song from a different place, and this song is going to mean different things to us. And so today I want to walk you through some guided writing, some journaling, some doodling, uh, in our service, we had little worksheets and pieces of paper and coloring pencils and uh, different writing utensils. So if you're just listening in, I'd invite you, if you're not driving or something, maybe get out a piece of paper, get a writing utensil so that you can do some writing. So start out by filling in the blank. Fill in the blank with the messages that play inside your head. The statement is, everyone considers me blank because of blank. Consider your own self-talk, both positive and negative. How do you imagine people consider you and why? Everyone considers me blank. And, and why? Sociologist Charles Cooley says, I am not who you think I am. I am not who I think I am. I am who I think you think I am. And sadly, that's often the truth. In Mary's song, she sang, Everyone will consider me highly favored because the Mighty One has done great things for me. Now, there were certainly people out there who wouldn't consider Mary highly favored. There were certainly people who would call Mary an adulteress, a nobody, a liar, a floozy, and much worse. And yet the song that Mary chose to sing to herself and to her son over and over was, God has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored. So take some time and reflect on your own answer. Everyone considers me blank because blank. How are these characterizations of yourself connected or disconnected from what you think God has done for you? Take a few minutes with that.
the scripture tells us that Mary hurried to Elizabeth's doorstep. Now, Elizabeth's doorstep was in a town in the hill country of Judea. And what we easily miss is that from Nazareth, where Mary was, to Elizabeth's doorstep, it was approximately three to five days of walking, like around 80 to 100 miles. I think it's quite likely that Mary composed this song while she was on that long walk. And then she sang it for the first time to Elizabeth. And then she sang it a thousand times after that to Jesus and to herself. Now Mary's song was Mary's song, it's true, but it carried echoes of those who had come before her. Mary's song is a mashup of all kinds of songs that had been sung by generations who came before Mary. And that's what lullabies often are. Lullabies carry echoes. They carry traces of those who have come before us. We inherit them. We adapt them. We pass them on. And so within Mary's song, we can find Hannah's song. 1 Samuel 2.8, Hannah sings, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes. We can find echoes of the songs of Miriam and Moses when God rescued their people from slavery. There are echoes of David's psalms. There are echoes of Deborah's song and Isaiah's vision. So reflect on this. Reflect on the mashup of songs, or maybe you say, my family wasn't very musical. The mashup of messages of fear, assurances, hopes, and dreams that you receive from your ancestors. In what way have you held on to those messages? And in what ways have you adapted their messages? How do you see God's mercy extending to your ancestors and to the next generation? Take some time and write about that. Mary's song is truly a song that's best understood by oppressed, impoverished, marginalized, displaced people. Mary sang about the rich and the poor, the powerful and the lowly, the rulers and their thrones. Mary was pregnant in a world where there was no middle class. There were the few, the wealthy, the elite landowners with vast feudal estates like only the top 1 or 2% of the population in ancient Palestine actually owned land. Then there was a very small merchant class, and then there was the majority poor. It was a world of limited goods, where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Uh, think of the image of there's only so much pie to go around for everyone, and so if someone ends up taking more than their slice of the pie, and someone else doesn't get any pie. To be poor was to be socially powerless. To be rich 
was synonymous with being greedy. The renowned church father Jerome said this of the rich. He said, every rich person is either unjust or the heir of an unjust person. In our day, we think of wealth bringing power, but in Mary's day, that was actually the opposite. Power was thought to bring wealth. So to be poor meant you had no power. It meant that you were vulnerable to the greedy, you were open to attack and loss. Many poor people lost their land to debt. Others lost their families to debt slavery. So when you lost your land, you entered the world of a day laborer. You became an expendable, a socially powerless person. Mary sang about kings being pulled down from their thrones and the powerful king that she had in mind was Herod. Herod, the political manipulator, the richest man in Mary's world with more employees than anyone around, the man with more building operations than anyone in the country, the man with seven sprawling palaces, the man whose massive taxes had caused so many poor peasant farmers to lose their land, the man who people truly thought of as a monster. He massacred people on a whim. He held routine executions. He assassinated his own family members. The man who later ordered the slaughter of all children Jesus' age in and around Bethlehem. She was singing about the man who ruled the roost for 32 years, the man of whom Caesar had said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. So Mary's song is a window into her own aches and fears. Take some time writing about your own aches and your own fears, personally, economically, politically, and globally. Mary's song was disruptive in every way. If Herod had heard it, he would have deemed it treasonous. Mary sang as if these things had already come to pass, even though they had not. She was anticipating a revolution. I hear Mary's song in the same vein as Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. I hear it in the same vein as so many slave songs and songs of refugees and immigrants. Those who know what it is not to be a part of the dominant social structure are best suited to truly feel the weight of Mary's song. They regularly experience that the current systems of the day are bankrupt of hope. Mary's song is so powerful and so hopeful so politically subversive that in Guatemala in the 1980s, any public reciting of Mary's song was banned. It's also been banned in India and in Argentina. 
Mary dreamed of her upside down world being turned right side up. She dreamed of a world where economic structures and systemic injustices that exploited people would actually come to an end. She dreamed of the transformation of society. She dreamed of a time when all people would enjoy the gifts that God gives. A world where people didn't rely on their strength and their wealth or their intellect to exert power over others. And we begin to see Mary's dreams take shape in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. We begin to see the kingdom, not of Karl Marx or of Adam Smith or Donald Trump or Joe Biden. We begin to see the kingdom of Jesus taking shape. A kingdom where Jewish freedom fighters and foreign slave girls and Roman jailers and military officials and fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes and day laborers and rich and poor and slave and free and children and elderly and men and women and eunuchs all became a family of equals. It was the healing of both the oppressor and the oppressed. The book of Acts says it this way, All who believed were together. They shared everything they owned. There were no needy persons among them. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything. There were no needy persons among them. So two reflection questions. First of all, which parts of Mary's song trigger feelings of defensiveness? judgment, obligation, or disruption. What might this reveal about who or what you are putting your trust in other than Jesus? Take some time with that question. Write about it. Finally, write about hope. Notice that Mary sees God doing a lot. She sees God doing great things for me, she says, extending mercy, performing mighty deeds, scattering the proud, bringing down rulers from their thrones, lifting up the humble, filling the hungry with good things, sending the rich away empty, helping his servant, remembering to be merciful. Write about hope. When you have little to no hope, what is it that you can't imagine God doing? And when you have hope, what do you envision that God is up to in your life and in this world?
Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.